Well, good morning. What a great day to be in church today. Um, I hope you've been able to read some devotions that uh, we have given to you on Easter Sunday. If you weren't able to grab one, they're books that look just like this. They say hope changes everything, um, and they're out in the lobby. You can grab one. Uh, you can start now. It's 21 days going through Matthew 26, 27, and 28, uh, which is the um, story of the resurrection and all of the things that happened before it. Um, two weeks ago, I hope you were here. We celebrated the Resurrection Sunday. We had an incredible time. And last week and this Sunday, uh, what I'd like to do is do a flashback, if you will, a rewind, and look at the things that uh, preceded, the things that led up to uh, the resurrection itself. Because it's important for us to remember and absorb and understand what Christ did for us by conquering death in the grave. And so today we're going to focus our study in Matthew 27, um, that specifically the re records the events of a day in history um, to which nothing can compare. It was both a day of intense evil and a day of astounding victory. It was, it was a day that um, no other day in history will rise to this level before or ever will. It was the day the King of Kings was crucified. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like in Matthew 27. It was an infamous day because it showed men at the height of sinfulness. It showed at how ugly and terrible that humanity could be. It was an infamous day because the creator of the universe was put to death by his created, by his creatures. He submitted all the authority that he had for just a few moments and let the evil and the, the created creatures um, torture him and beat him. But it was also a famous day in history because on that day, sin was defeated. The power of Satan was forever broken and the darkness of death was invaded by the Prince of Life. And so it was a difficult day. But I wanna look specifically at three things today that I believe the crucifixion of Jesus uh, found in Matthew 27 that are worth looking at more in depth, and they are the place of his crucifixion, the pain of his crucifixion, and the power of his crucifixion. The, pain, the place, the pain, and the power. Okay, so let's start with the place of his crucifixion. So what do we know about the place where Jesus died on the cross? Well, we know it was a prominent place. I, in fact, I have a picture of it here. Um, the place where Jesus was crucified was called Golgotha, and the, it actually means the place of the skull, or in Latin, it's called Calvary. And if you look closely, uh, you might be able to see it was called that because it actually resembled the skull of a dead man. That's what it looked like. And it was located just outside the city gates of Jerusalem, and it was very well known to the people who lived there. It was an actual physical location. I visited it. I've been there before. And in fact, they say that over time, um, over the elements and the weather, it's even more difficult to see the skull, but you can still see the vagueness of what the people saw. And the people that lived in that time had witnessed thousands of criminals and others who were considered enemies of the Roman government be killed there. So Jesus was not the only one crucified there. In fact, many were crucified there before him and probably many after him, but the people of Israel knew it very well. The people of Israel knew it very well because they also would allow the bodies of the crucified often to rot on the crosses. 
And so that was the place where you did not walk when you had your children with you. That was the place you knew you, you perhaps could smell it from a bit away. And so the people knew where this was. Now, even more interesting is Golgotha, this particular mountain, is in a region called Mount Moriah. Okay, a, a mountain that has multiple peaks. It, it, it's a region of, Mount, of a Mount, Mount Moriah. And this area is very prominent to Jewish people. In fact, Mount Moriah is key to many historical events in the Bible. Let me remind you, um, first of all, it was here where Abraham's faith was tested when God instructed him to offer up his son to be sacrificed um, by Isaac. And in, or I'm sorry, his son Isaac to be sacrificed. So in Genesis 22:2, God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. And so Mount Moriah is listed there. Well, in 990 BC, King David was instructed by God to erect an altar found in 2 Chronicles 3.1. And we read, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. And the temple was built there. So on that very mountain, where Abraham was asked to sacrifice his only son, was the mountain where Solomon built a temple to hold God's, intangible, hold God's tangible presence. And that is the same mountain where Jesus Christ was crucified. So the mountain where God gave up his only son was the mountain that Jesus sent Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The scripture says that Jesus was crucified on Golgotha outside the city gates of Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So do you see that all of these very significant things were happening on this mountain? And it's interesting because I began to think, okay, so if um, Abraham was supposed to um, sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain in the same place where God was sacrificing his son, it was a foreshadowing of such, why wasn't it maybe particularly in the exact same place? Why wasn't it in the temple? And it's interesting because Hebrews 13 explains this. Hebrews 13 explains why the crucifixion didn't happen on the exact site of the temple, but still happened in the region of Mount Moriah. And I want to look at it with you. Hebrews 13, 11 through 13, it says, The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. So this place of crucifixion was prominent, but it was also prophetic. Because in Genesis 22, when Abraham offers up his son Isaac as a burnt offering to God, we see this father willingly ready to give up his only son to die. But then we watch how Abraham in great faith is, would, would put his son on the altar and sacrifice him if God asked him to. But he says in Genesis 22:18, my God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering my son. He believes that God will provide. And then a few verses later, Abraham says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so we do know that God provided Abraham a ram 
so he didn't have to kill his son on that day. And Abraham didn't know it yet, but he was prophesying something bigger. He was prophesying something bigger, something that would change eternity. He stood in a place where he was speaking about something that would change the entire course of history, that not only was God providing the ram that day so that he didn't have to kill his son, but God would provide his son, the lamb of God, on that very mountain, on that place where he stood. In my mind, you were going, wow. All right, that was happening, so do you wanna just, okay, thank you, awesome. When I read that and look at that, I see that this is our God, the God of precision, the God of intentionality, the God who sees you in the details of your life with great clarity. On that mountain of Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion, the Lord provided. He provided the ram for Abraham, and centuries later, he also provided everything we need to live forever with him in heaven if we trust him. And that is the place that Jesus died. All right, now let's look at the pain of the crucifixion. The place, the pain, and the power. Let's look at the pain. So in Matthew 27, 35, it actually is pretty simple. It skates over it a bit. It just says, um, they crucified him. And those words don't even begin to convey the horror of what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. Um, we, before he even goes to the cross, he has been through at least four trials he has been beaten by the Jews. He has been beaten by the Roman soldiers. He has endured the horror of the Roman scourge. He has been mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, made to carry his own cross to Calvary, and then he's crucified. I want you to watch as this medical doctor talks about clinically the particulars of the crucifixion. Yeah, I, I believe that Christ's suffering uh, and the demonstration of the kind of, um, of physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there are there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, emotional stress and physiological stress can, in fact, uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and, the, and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps, which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, uh, but eventually, once the outer layers were, were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our bodies. It had a huge blood supply up there. So then having those 
thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp, which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, this is not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Typically when a victim has to uh, uh, carry the cross, what has been described uh, in the literature, in, in actual Roman literature, is they, they describe, the, they, they carry the crossbar. Uh, and the crossbar is estimated alone, was estimated to weigh about 110 pounds. And of course, if your arms are stuck out here, wrapped up on the cross, crossbar, and you fall down, you need help getting up. You, you, you just can't get up on your own because there's no possible way without your arms to get up. So he would have needed help getting up. If he, fall, if he fell over, there's a good chance that he could have hit his chest, which, which then could account for the possibility of a cardiac injury. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna, at that position, it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand, and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out, which you have to have, you have to have a solid point of fixation. Uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist, and so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or, or impingement of the nerve that would have created a tremendous amount of pain so that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spiked feet, which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. So, so even if he survives the actual crucifixion, he would have had to survive what I believe to be a, a a lethal injury from the spear just to find out whether he was alive or not. What's described is the loss of water and blood, and that would entail either the the uh, uh, either pleural effusion or pericardial effusion, and the blood would have come from either pulmonary artery, a pulmonary vein, the aorta or vena cava, or the heart itself. None of those injuries, unless you're treated immediately by a trauma surgeon like myself, with all the advanced equipment that we have would be survivable after even a few minutes. Christ as the Son of God could have survived anything. He chose to manifest himself as a human at that point in time and allowed himself to die. And, and being human at that point in time, he could not have survived this particular series of traumas. It's not possible. Um, Christ as God could have survived anything they threw at him. And, but he chose to be Christ, the human, at that point in time to die for our sins. And that given that, that self-limitation of remaining to be human, he died. He did not survive the event. And what wondrous love is that? He could have called for myriads of angels, but he endured this crucifixion in silence, just as the prophet said that he would. And why would he do this? Well, there's only one reason. 
because he loves you. And he loves me. There's no catch. There's no trick. There's no agenda to advance. There is nothing to prove. Jesus Christ died on the cross because he loves you. And he knew that was the only way to close the gap. It was the only way to rip the curtain. And it was the only way to bridge the distance between us and him. So why is it important we understand the pain he experienced? Why do I show you that video? Well, I think it's important for two reasons. First, we need to have some concept of the weight and the darkness of the sin and how that contributes to our lives. And I believe that this is one of the clearest moments where the supernatural is seen in the natural, that our sin is hard to define. It's hard to see or quantify at times, especially our hidden sin or the things that we struggle with that that do maybe more inward damage than outward damage. But during the crucifixion and the the pain of Jesus that we see very clearly how harmful and dangerous and evil that our sin is. The pain that Jesus is experiencing is the manifestation of our sin. That is the manifestation of the darkness of our hearts. All of what he just described happened to Jesus is because of the sin that we commit and the sin that we hold as humanity. Secondly, I think it's important to understand Uh, specifically the pain of Jesus, because we need to carry a very personal conviction that he actually did die on the cross that day. You know, Muslims affirm that Jesus lived, but they do not believe that Jesus was crucified. In fact, some prominent Muslims are quoted saying they believe that they honor Jesus more than Christians do because they refuse to believe that God, or Allah in their case, would permit him to suffer death on a cross. Muslims believe that early Christians were somehow mistaken or or maybe they were storytellers or, or myth makers. But what's interesting is if the death of Jesus was a myth, then it had to be created overnight. Because within weeks, Christians were preaching the saving power of Christ's death and suffering. And these early Christians based their faith on the fact that Jesus was publicly tried, condemned, executed, and then raised from the dead. And they spoke this way within weeks after these events, when thousands of people who had opposed the faith could have proved it wrong if Jesus had not died. In fact, it would have been much easier to prove that it didn't happen then than it is now, because they could have gone to Pilate, the governor, or they could have gone to Herod, the king, or the Jewish council, or the soldiers, or the, the, the witnesses that watched the crucifixion, and they could have gotten proof that he had not been condemned or crucified the way Christians said he was. But in fact, no one ever did that. Everyone in Jerusalem knew that Jesus had been crucified, and many of them watched him die with their very own eyes. The pain of the crucifixion is difficult to process and hard to bear and think about. But it is really important for us to defend our faith because it sets us apart from the belief systems of others. Because if Jesus really didn't die, then how could he be raised to life again? So we must have this understanding, this medical understanding, this this practical understanding that no human being could withstand the pain, and the way that the crucifixion had played out. Lastly today, I want to talk about the power of his crucifixion. So we talked about the place, the pain, and 
The last thing I want to talk about is the power. And there is redemptive power in the cross. When Jesus, the Savior, breathed his last on the cross, when he said, it is finished, he is saying that through his death, he satisfied God's just demands for sin. That he took the place of the guilty person. That, that he took the sin of us, and, and he took it before the judgment of God, and he secured redemption through his blood for all who will trust him as their Savior. And his death on the cross forever satisfied God. His death on the cross liberates those trapped and victimized by sin, and he sets us free when we receive him by faith. The cross also carries the power of restoration. King David wrote two psalms, Psalm 22. He wrote a lot of psalms, but he wrote two particular psalms, Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. And Psalm 22 starts out like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It's, it's this grief and pain and frustration. And then you go to Psalm 23. And the first three verses are, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. As if women are the only ones who have mood swings, okay? So Psalm 22, he's dying of grief and pain. Psalm 23, he's happy and in the field. Both of these psalms, they're messianic. They foreshadow, they're prophetic, the person of Jesus. What it's saying, in fact, on the cross, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 22. He says, God, why have you forsaken me? Why was there such a big difference between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23? Well, because the promise of Psalm 23 is purchased by the price of Psalm 22. That it changed so drastically because all of eternity changed drastically. That in Psalm 22, the, the pain of the crucifixion and the ache of God Abandoning and leaving Jesus on the cross is what satisfied and brought restoration in between those two psalms to Psalm 23. And the promise of the cross is that your good shepherd will restore your soul forever. That he was forsaken by God, scorned and mocked by men, and his hands and feet were pierced, but it was all for your sake. It was also that he could guide you through every dark valley, dark valley, pursue you with goodness and mercy every day of your earthly life, and bring you with him to live in his house forever if you trust him. God did leave Jesus for three painful hours, but he did it so that we can be assured that God will never have to leave us. That no matter how bad our situation or how badly we mess up, when everyone else runs the other way, God never will. John Piper is an author and theologian, and he describes it this way, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Um, God says to us who believe, I am your God. I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. I am your God over you. I am with you by your side. I will strengthen you from the inside of you. I will help you all around you from wherever the enemy comes. I will uphold you from underneath you, over you, by you, inside you, around you, underneath you. Therefore, do not fear. So in Matthew 27, we see the place, the pain, and the power of the crucifixion. And so this morning, we're going to end our service, uh, I believe, in the most fitting way possible um, by partaking communion together. And so at this time, the service hosts are going to distribute the communion. They're going to get their supplies. Um, and as they do that, um, I just if you can just sit tight for a couple more minutes here, let's do communion together. Um, 
I want to remind you just logistically, there are two cups stacked together. The bottom holds the bread, the top holds the juice. So if you just take one stack of cups, you'll have everything that you need for communion. But if you are here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus, and you believe that he died on the cross, and you believe that he rose from the dead, we invite you to participate with us. We believe that Jesus came to die for every gender, every race, every culture, every age. His love reaches the depth and the vastness of all that we are, and all we have to do is trust him. And so if you are not a believer in Jesus, but you want to surrender your life to the Lord, this is the perfect time to do it. All you have to do is say, God, I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose again to bridge the gap between me and you, and I want to have a relationship with you. Forgive me of my sin that kept me far from you. You just pray that prayer even from your seat and God hears you and God sees you. He's spoken to us in so many ways this morning. Don't miss that invitation. Perhaps the most important invitation you'll ever, ever receive. So go ahead and you can distribute the elements. As you get them, would you hold them? We'll take them all together here in just a few moments. On the night that Jesus was handed over, he took the bread and he gave thanks to God and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may eat the bread. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us even unto death. Send your spirit so that we may know the pain that you experienced on the cross was because of your deep love for us. In Jesus' name. After supper, the scripture says that Jesus took the cup of the wine and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you drink it, remember me. You may drink the cup. Lord, give us clean hearts and forgiving hearts and praising hearts. And as we drink this, we remember the power of the cross to redeem us and to restore us. Thank you for the blood that was shed for us. Now, would you stand? just to end service today, we're just going to sing this chorus of this song one more time, remembering that Jesus Christ indeed died on the cross, and the fact of that means something significant to us as Christians, and that he cannot be stopped. He is the mountain mover and the breaker of chains. And so would you just sing this last chorus together as we go today?
place today. We thank you for what you've said through your word, what you've spoken to us. We thank you that you have triumphed over the grave and that we have a hope that changes everything. You are so good. And so we just praise you as we go this morning. Amen. Amen, church. You have an awesome week. If you need prayer, we're still up here. We love you, but go with that truth that hope changes everything.